Let's turn to Psalm number 10. Be reading the whole of the psalm, all 18 verses. Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. His heart, or he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been, a help, you've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask his blessing. Lord, you see the oppression that happens in the land. You see the oppression of darkness in our souls. Lord, you see the wicked, the evildoers, as they come together, seeking to break their bonds, to remove their chains. But Lord, we know that you sit in heaven and laugh at them, that you mock them. Lord, we pray that you vindicate us as you vindicated Christ by raising him from the dead. Lord, we pray now that you apply this to our hearts. You see our needs. May we live in light of this beautiful psalm and draw comfort and courage from it. We pray asking this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 10 is a psalm that my wife and I have drawn much comfort. We've gone to it many times when we've seen terrible things happening around us, 
difficulties in our lives, we often come to it seeking comfort, and we never go away disappointed. Dear saints, I think we can grow cold to the challenges that happen around us. I believe that the time we live in is significant to make us uncomfortable in many ways. Our Christian faith has proved to be displeasurable, to say it mildly, to those around us who do not believe, who do not call on the name of Jesus. Our culture has shifted, and in some ways, it has shown us, in a way, there's a positive of it, in that it has shown us that we had false friends. We had cultural Christians who were not in Christ. They thought of Christianity as as something that we do as Americans. That is tradition, and tradition is good. Well, yes, tradition is good. But that's not what the faith is. The Christian faith stands regardless of the nation we call home, regardless of the nation we hold our citizenship, because we have a citizenship that shall never fade away in a kingdom that shall never be assaulted, shall never be canceled, shall never be corrupted by its leaders. For the leader is the triune God, creator of heaven and earth. And so this psalm is a comfort to us as we see that the pendulum has swung in such a way, in such a manner as Truly, you are left scratching your head sometimes as you read the headlines, as you see people engage with one another with such vitriol. There seems to be a lack of intelligence, certainly no shortage of that, and there seems to be more and more anger and frustration, violence, threats, wars and rumors of wars. Dear saints, do you grow weary of this chaos around you? Do you grow weary of it? Do you grow weary of the warfare that happens within yourself? Because let us not think that, oh, those outside, they're the worst. Well, dear saints, how would we be any different if we didn't have the Lord Jesus? if we didn't have union with Christ, if he didn't pluck us from the fire. Perhaps you feel the oppression of sin within your heart, going, did I really just do that again? Did I really say that again? Did I do that thing, say that thing, that I promised I would never do again? But dear saints, Psalm 10 reminds us that the Lord hears your cries. That's actually the theme of this passage, is that the Lord God indeed hears your cries. And we'll see that in two parts. The psalm is actually nicely arranged in that way. Verses 1 through 11, we're asking the question, where is God when the wicked prevail over the righteous? Where is God when the wicked prevail over the righteous? 
And then verses 12 to 18, our God, our King forever and ever, glory be to him, he shall reign forever. He shall do justice. You're taking notes simply stated, our God, our King, shall do justice. And so to our first point, where is God when the wicked prevail over those who are grotesquely unrighteous, despising righteousness? When those who are wicked, when they crush down those who do good and hold the faith, Look at the first verse. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever thought those thoughts and quickly tried to stop those thoughts and go, that's blasphemous, isn't it? I shouldn't say something about God like that, should I? This is God's word, though. Through the psalmist, God has given expression to human thoughts. He's not shocked by what you think in times of struggle and trial. So God, where are you? Where are you? But notice something. This is not what the wicked do when they say there is no God. God, where are you? Therefore, you must not be there. No, it is questioning yet believing Lord, I know you're there. Why are you far away from me? So it seems. It seems as if you hide yourself, but you are there. So that first verse is meant to be carried as like a refrain, a chorus to be sung after every other verse describing the oppression of the wicked. Like, for example... In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Lord, why do you stand far off? Why are you in this trouble? The wicked boasts the desires of his soul, curses and renounces God. God, where are you? Where are you? Are you hiding yourself in this time of trouble? Keep that thought in mind because that is the thought of the psalmist after every complaint In verse 2, the psalmist begins in, he asks the question, where are you? There's trouble. Well, what is this trouble? In verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Dear saints, they are not lazy about crushing those under their feet. They are determined They are determined. They pursue with passion after the poor. Those who need defense, they take advantage of their lack of defense and they go for them, they strike them. And not only that, with arrogance. They mock. They point and laugh. But what does the psalmist say? This is something of an imprecation, an imprecatory psalm, in this verse, at least, and other parts of it. That means that the psalmist is calling judgment upon the wicked. Dear saints, that wasn't just for the Old Testament. 
we are to pray and sing and proclaim the imprecatory psalms. We are to call for the wicked to be crushed. We are to call for justice. And what does he say? Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. The psalmist is asking not that they fail, but that the very things that they seek to harm others with, let them fall prey to that. In verse 3, why? For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. He boasts. This is what the wicked hold to as a standard. Notice there's three things in these, in these verses here. He boasts, he's greedy, and he blasphemes. This is why the psalmist is calling for them to fall into their own traps. If they think they are God... Let them fall the judgment. So what are these three things? The boasting, the greed. And of course, boasting and greed are contrary to confession of God. So they must renounce God. Boast the desires of his soul. What one among us has not heard, quite frankly, the foolish phrase, you just must follow your heart. You can be anything you want to be. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Dear saints, what does that look like? That looks like chaos and tyranny because every person is immediately going to look to themselves and go, what I want is most important. My truth is the most important truth. And if you come against that truth, you must suffer. Boasts of the desires of his soul. In 1 John, John speaks of this as the pride of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the boastfulness of the life they have made for themselves, as if they could add an hour to their life, as if they could add an inch to their stature, as if they could stop a hair from falling from their head. The depths of this person's soul is corrupt. It's full of greed. They curse others. And not only do they curse others out of their greed, because greed inherently means I must have it and you must not, but they also promote Others, they cheer on others who do wicked. And they must renounce the Lord. They must blaspheme. As it says in verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, that is God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. It's desperation. There is no God because God forbid there's a God because then I would have to face him someday. I must live in denial of this. But let us pause for a moment lest we start thinking too big of ourselves. Because isn't it at the moment of sin when we do sins, when we knowingly do sins, 
that sometimes our thoughts are, God's not going to see it. It's a foolish thought. We know God's going to see it. But we're effectively denying that God exists in that moment. We are functioning as atheists. When you do that thing that you ought not to be doing, when you say that thing you ought not to be saying, and you know that you're going to do it before you do it, you are saying in your heart that there is no God. You're boasting of a darkness in your soul in which the Lord Jesus has died for. That's why when we describe sin, we describe it as insane. When we see somebody who's grown up in the church seem to be a Christian among us and they turn away and they chase after a life of insanity, you can look that person in the eye and you can see that something is off. They have a look in their face that something is not right. Their thoughts that desperately there is no God, there cannot be a God, please let there not be a God. Because the wretchedness that I feel for chasing my own dreams and chasing my own desires, being greedy for gain and cursing others, is killing me. They must always do more, pursue more. And for a while, sometimes it seems to work out. For a while, they can get to a place of denial that everything seems to be okay. What does it say down in verse 5? His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. For all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says, going down in verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This fool, and truly a fool, they've denied God. And the psalmist says elsewhere that the fool says there is no God. But this person seems to have the freedom that they are desiring. We know people who've walked away from the church. Perhaps it was one of us at, at one time. And they describe a freedom that they feel, a weight lifted. Well, it's the burden of a false god, of guilt that the Lord Jesus was not actually putting on them, not in how they think. But they describe their times as prosperous. They're finally free, can sleep in on Sundays and go to brunch. No one's telling me to go to church. This is working out fine. They don't see the end. They have not discerned the end of that and the misery that inevitably comes because the judgments of God are out of sight, out of mind. They are not familiar anymore. When it says they puffs at the foes. They're puffing at justice. They're scoffing at it. Scoffing at justice that God deals out. Indeed, dear saints, they're puffing at us. Our enemies boast their victory over us. They speak of it as being on the right side of history. History. 
And so what are we to do? What do we see when we look forward, when we see the tyranny of the wicked? Look at 7 through 10. What's described here? Verse 7 speaks of cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, iniquity. These things under the tongue, meaning from the mouth, these things proceed. These people are liars. They're fine with lying. They have no twinge of guilt anymore. They've seared their consciences. They try to suppress it. They manipulate. They harm. And it uses this verbal way and then describes a physical way that is more resemblance or more resembles something of like a back alley murder. It's horrifying. Crying for help but not finding any. Being swept away to a secret place to be harmed beyond imagination. Like an animal after prey. Dear saints, the wicked, when we move away from the Lord, when we give in to our own sins, we become more animalistic. We less and less resemble the image of God, and we more resemble that of beasts. It's a denial of what we truly are as human beings. It's a terrible image. The lurking, the looking out, the carefully hunting to do harm. They are skillful at harming others, whether it be physical, as described, or be in ways in which they slander others, cancel others. But notice in verse 11 how the tune changes just a little bit. Because what does he say before? In verse 4, there is no God. There's confidence there. Again, hopeful that there is no God. But then verse 11 shows the truth, the suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought there wasn't a God. Right? It's like those atheists who are like, God doesn't exist, and I hate him for it. It's like, what are you saying? If there is no God, then how could God forget? But no, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Again, do you hear the desperation in the voice of the wicked? They know that judgment is coming, but they cannot bear to face it. In fact, their idea of facing it is far worse than the people of God facing the oppression by the wicked. Because we face oppression with hope. We face the oppression of our own sin with hope, with the knowledge of forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And we face the oppression of the wicked knowing that he shall judge them. And that to which we rejoice It's our second point. We're we're led right into that. We leave off in our first point with that cliffhanger of sorts, of this, this to be continued for the wicked. God doesn't exist. Well, maybe he does, but he's forgotten. He doesn't see it. Isn't that right? But remember that question? Why do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Here's the next thing that the psalmist says. He says, Arise, O Lord. 
He's speaking to the king who shall do justice. The only one who can bring about balance, who can restore, who can uphold the poor, who can defend the fatherless and the widow. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. And that's supposed to be contrasted directly because God's hand is mentioned here. And of course, that's metaphorical because we know that God is a spirit, not like in the form as we. But hand, it says, lift up your hand. You take these things into your hands. This is a symbol for power and strength, the mighty arm of the Lord. Or as it says in Exodus, that by his finger, he led the people out. We are dealing with power beyond the greatest powers combined upon earth. That is the power of our God. And this is why the psalmist appeals and says, Arise, O God, O Lord, and pursue them. Judge them, because there is nothing that they can do. They will call for the mountains to fall on them. They will flee and find that there is no place to go. Because he's not forgotten the afflicted. He has not stopped his ears. His ears are not dull of hearing, as it says in Isaiah 59. No. In verse 13, the psalmist brings this complaint. Why does the wicked say this? Pointing out, like, how foolish is this? This is a foolish thing to say. Why is it that they would say in their heart about God renouncing him that you will not call to account? Don't they know it? Don't they see it? Don't they understand how foolish that is? Because the Lord does see. He notes the mischief, every bit of it. All vexation. Dear saints, Peter calls Lot righteous. And if you read the account, Lot doesn't come off looking so righteous when he lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. But because his righteousness is that of the Lord's, he trusts in the promise of the seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And when he cries out, the Lord hears and sends his angels to rescue Lot and his family, of which a lot of them don't go, including his own wife. And the Lord destroys. Dear saints, the Dead Sea isn't a Dead Sea by accident. You're looking at the thumbprint of judgment upon the land. There's a reason why things do not grow there why it is a unique environment on the planet Earth. The thumbprint of judgment was upon there because the place was a luscious garden. It was a place full of fields and trees and the like. Not anymore. Because the Lord noted the mischief and vexation upon the righteous. And he took it into his hands, his mighty hand, it says he commits himself to the helpless, helper to the fatherless. Dear saints, these are the people most 
vulnerable in our societies. And it's used as both, yes, literal, but also symbolic because we are the poor in spirit, the people of God. We are the ones who, like sheep, have been slaughtered. But the shepherd is coming, and the shepherd will break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Dear saints, do you pray that when you see wickedness in the world? Do you pray, oh God, please shatter the arm of the wicked. Please break the arm of the evildoers. Bring their plans to naught. May they fall into their own devices and be crushed under them. Do you pray that? Because, believe it or not, you do actually pray it without knowing it. Every single time you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you speak of the day of the Lord, when you call for Christ to come again, what are you praying for? You are praying for the judgment of the wicked. And dear saints, let me put it one more further. When you pray for the salvation of those whom you love, when you pray for those who are wayward, when you pray for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are praying this prayer. But how? Because that's the judgment that falls upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the judgment that fell upon his head for you. His arm was broken in a way of speaking. He was crushed for your iniquities. He fell into the devices of Satan as if his own though he bare knew no sin. He knew no sin in himself, and yet he died like a wretch and sinner, cursed upon the tree. For you, dear saints, sin must be punished. It will be punished. It has been punished on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Call the wickedness to account till you find none. Dear saints, do you know that he's called your wickedness until he has found none? Because what he has found in you is Christ's righteousness. You have been purged completely of your sins and the guilt. But don't I still sin? Aren't we talking about the oppression of my sin too? How I vex myself and others in my midst? Those things are forgiven. Not that we abuse these things. No, in fact, verse 16 is the response of those things. The Lord is king forever and ever. It's a doxology. It is a praise to the glory of the Father. That's our response. And it's a response now for what he has done in our lives. That no matter what the wicked do to us, they cannot kill the soul. In fact, here's the irony. If they put all of us to death, where do we go? Heaven. Our death is a vehicle to paradise, as Christ calls it upon the cross. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? They cannot harm us, dear saints. Yes, they can harm the body, but don't you know you're going to get a new one? In the new heavens and new earth, 
There's nothing they can do. Take heart. The nations, the wickedness, shall perish out of the land. When the new heavens and new earth come, there will be no more wickedness, not in ourselves and not around us. So take heart because, as it says in 17 and 18, you hear the desire of the afflicted. The desire. Contrast that to the desire, the boastful desires of the wicked. Dear saints, our desire is to be like Christ. If you bear his spirit within you, if you bear the name of Christ upon your forehead, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, then that is what you desire. And he has heard your desire. He has inclined his ear to you. He has defended you. And he shall call you home. So do you grow weary of the evil around you in the world? Do you grow weary of the oppression of sin in your life? Understand that there's coming a time when the man of sin shall strike terror no more, that his minions shall strike terror no more, that our sin shall strike terror no more. We are heading towards a place, towards a time when there will be no more tears and no more sorrow, no more sin. We are heading towards a time where it will always be doxology, praising his name, never seeking to, to petition him for something because we will have it all before us. When our faith shall become sight, dear saints, So when you pick up the newspaper or scroll through a news site or whatever, however you get your news, if you're doing that even anymore, I know a lot of people have stopped looking at the news and good on you. But when you see those things, take heart and call upon the Lord to secure the righteous and bring about an end to the wicked. When you see your sins plaguing you again, take heart and go to him. He has heard you. He loves you. And let us hold on to the hope of the future when the man of terror will strike terror, when the man of sin will strike terror no more. Let us pray. Deadly Father, Lord, we give thanks that we indeed are held by your righteous, omnipotent hand. That though we falter and fail, and yes, we are crushed all the day long by the wicked around us, we know that you shall do justice. Lord, that you are king forever. Lord, that when we ask, where are you and why do you stand far off, that we know that you are near, that you hear us, that you hear our cries. Lord, please, be with us as we go. As people have promised that this year is going to be chaos and more turmoil, Lord, whether it be from politics or whatever other things, Lord, we do pray that you prosper your church. We pray for repentance in the land. May you bring about all these hate groups, all these groups that celebrate sin and tyranny, 
And we pray that you bring them to an end. We pray that you do so by bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And we pray that you do all this to the glory of your triune holy name, Father, Son, Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.